This episode of Shameless is brought to you by Becca May, the makeup bag that fits it all. And there's so much change in television and in the media and in that space that you start something and you kind of just progress with it year on year. And that was honestly the the mindset that we all had. We, all, we were all like, okay, well, we're starting on the show and it's going to go to the end of the year. And then at the end of the year, we'll make a decision or the, you know, the, the powers that be will make a decision about whether it continues. And that's kind of been the process. Hello and welcome to Shameless, the pop culture podcast for smart women who love dumb stuff. Today on the show, we're joined by the one and only Jan Fran. Of course, Jan Fran is an Australian journalist and presenter, best known for her work co-hosting SBS's The Feed. Outside of that, though, Jan is also a little bit of a podcast fiend, hosting The Few Who Do alongside Mark Fennell and having hosted Sexism in the City. Jan has also shot and produced documentaries from all over the world, as well as occasionally appearing as a commentator on The Project, Q&A, ABC Breakfast, Paul Murray Live, Studio 10, The Today Show and The Drum. In this chat, we go everywhere from how Jan got her big break in the media to what a diverse media landscape looks to her and why her dream gig would be at the forefront of a late-night female-driven comedy show. Here's Jan. Jan, welcome to Shameless. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We're so excited to have you. When we asked our listeners who they want to hear from when we come to Sydney, your name popped up so many times, of course, because I think a lot of our listeners found you from the feed, obviously, and saw you go viral a million different times on their Facebook feed. Right. Okay. Well, that's that's great to hear. I was sort of wondering how you had stumbled across me, but I guess it was... How we had stumbled across you. Are you surprised that people know who you are or that our audiences might overlap? Look, I'm surprised that anybody responds to anybody else on the internet. (laughs) Like, that's what I'm constantly surprised by all of the time because I'm not a commenter. I don't think I've ever left a comment on anybody's page or unless they're a personal friend of mine and I know them and I have a kind of a prior connection with them. So anytime someone like responds to comments or posts something or recommends something or recommends me, I'm like, oh, great. I think your People videos are shared into our Facebook group. We've got a very vibrant Facebook group connected to this podcast and your explanation videos through the feed mm-hmm. or kind of like your responses to political events are very popular. In oh, great. Group. Great. I love that. <laughs> Dan, we start every episode in the same way and that is to ask is there anything you are reading watching or listening to at the moment that you would recommend to other people Look, I just want to issue a bit of a disclaimer that I haven't finished reading this book, so I don't know if I would recommend it thus far, but I am so far very much enjoying it, more than what I thought I would. It's a book called The End of Men by a woman called Hannah Rosen, and it's a couple of years old now. It's a few years old, actually. So it has been in my bookshelf for ages, and for some reason I picked it up a few days ago, and it's so good. I'm powering through it at the mo, And it's basically about, so it's called The End of Men and the Rise of Women, and it's basically just kind of chronicling how in the last few decades, women have kind of gone upwards on this very, you know, steep upward trajectory. And men have either plateaued or kind of gone downwards. And she talks a lot about men in the Rust Belt in America who have been working in manufacturing and have seen all their jobs go overseas and who are no longer the protector and the provider. And this was their really big main role. And so they've lost a lot of their identity around that. Anyway, that's what I'm into. That's what I'm reading. And it's pretty good. That seems like a very you book as well. It's such a me book. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know why I didn't actually read it earlier, but yeah, I think it found me at, at 
especially the right time. It's so nice as well when you find a book that was released a while ago that you didn't get into at the time. You're like discovering it as if it's new. Yeah, and I tried to get into it at the time. And for some reason, it just didn't click. And now I feel like it's clicked a lot more. And maybe because we're seeing the rise of, you know, um, men's rights activists or people who are uh, kind of opening up this space around men and what's happening with men. And, you know, Jordan Peterson's very popular. And I think it's because there is a genuine void there. There is a genuine issue that, that he taps into that's been spoken about for years. I mean, this book was out, I think, in like 2013 or 14. Oh, wow. That feels a little ahead of the curve. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I, there, there were a lot of psychiatrists and psychologists who were sort of had been working in this space yeah. who had been saying the same thing and studied things like marriage and, you know, what happens when the divorce rate increases and among which communities and what that does to men and what that does to women. Do you think it's written for women or for men? I think it's written for anyone who cares, really. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Which would probably be mostly women, yeah. unfortunately, <laughs> so far. Yeah, I mean, I think if, if you're a man and you are genuinely concerned about these issues and you do come in good faith and you want to read as much as possible, then this book is as much for you as it is for anybody else, really. Amazing. Mm. Jan, the second question we always ask is, what was your childhood like? Who were you as a child? So I, I wasn't born here. I was born in Lebanon and I, I grew up there. I'm just going to move this because it's a very, I have a croissant. I know. <laughs> you were like gazing at the croissant. I know, because I'm like, shh, you can eat rattling. it. You can nibble it. I will nibble it, but it's just, it's Open such the bag. a... <laughs> It's let ASMR, me, like we were talking about you guys before. A bit we of a treat first. And just let me rustle the bag really close to the mic. Um, no, I'm going to move it out of the way for a minute. But my yeah, my childhood was was pretty good. I was like a mini version of me, as my parents will tell you. Very sort of precocious, very curious, very loved speaking, loved attention, um, which I probably don't like as much now as what I used to. Um, and just kind of was always very curious about the world. Really, how old were you when you moved here? I was four. And do you remember much of the zero to four period of your life? The old country? I have very hazy vignettes of, yeah. of what, what it was like. Funnily enough, I remember the shutters in, in my parents' house in, in the village because they lived in a um, kind of, well, it's all sort of villages in, in the northern part of the country, but that's they came from um, this really, I was there actually in December last year. It was this beautiful, quaint kind of Mediterranean village and I remember distinctly the shutters being this sort of deep green French shutters that they had in their in their home so when I got back there last year I saw them and I was like oh those shutters they kind of triggered like this weird memory that for some reason had been sitting there for you know three decades how was it being back have you gone back much since this last time around was really good I haven't been back all that much I've probably been back once in in 2004 and then once in 07 but only for a weekend because um, I was in Cyprus so really only just one time and then this last time and I went back with my sisters and it was it was really lovely I I actually didn't spend as much time as what I would have liked to spend over there and you know just with my family and kind of going a little bit around the village and trying to work out the history of my family and grandfather and and being there with my sisters and and being there with a whole bunch of people from Australia you know my partner was there as well and he is he's not Lebanese and he he was going back for the he was going there for the first time and you know just seeing how welcomed he was it was yeah it was really lovely were you able to preserve much of that Lebanese culture having moved from Lebanon to Australia as a kid? Yeah, I mean, I think there's always an element of preservation with with cultures. I think with me, you know, we moved to Bankstown, which was Lebanese heartland Mm. here in Sydney. So there was already a very established community here and, you know, there were already like Lebanese stores and lots of people spoke Arabic and there were big churches in and around where I grew up, which kind of, you know, were the epicentre of the community. So, yeah, we were able to, to preserve a lot of the kind of culture 
culture that we had in, in Lebanon, I suppose, or that exists in Lebanon. But it's a very, and I say this all the time, it's not actually Lebanese culture. It's very specifically Lebanese-Australian culture. Because what exists here in that microcosm, you actually won't find back in Lebanon. Because Lebanon has moved, moved on. Like, people will have moved in the 70s and 80s, right? And they would have almost preserved this thing that existed yeah. in that oh, that's time. that's so interesting. But here. And, and then it would have been mixed in with all of the influences of Australian culture. It's like a hybrid, yeah. It's, so it ends up being this very kind of hybrid, very unique form of cultural experience. What was it that you wanted to do then? You said when you were young, you had like maybe a lot of curiosity to you and confidence and maybe a desire for attention. What was it that you thought you were going to do or that you wanted to do with your life? I probably always thought that I was going to go into journalism. I did want to be an actress and uh, that was swiftly shut down because my parents were like, no, that's not a thing. Um, <laughs> you know. You're going to university. Yeah. Well, oh, yeah. My, my parents were adamant that I was going to university. Actually, the first year of university, I dropped out of university. And I think my parents just kind of did a mini freak out but tried to be cool. <laughs> and be like, modern about it. Yeah. So I'm like, all right, that's okay. So you've, you've dropped. Oh, you have dropped out. You've, did, you've definitely dropped out okay and what do you want to, oh you want to do an acting course okay and it, okay six weeks and I have to pay for it okay all right you just see like my dad just you know deep breaths just deep breaths doing the zen fingers and they did they paid for a six-week screen acting course this was in the, the second semester of my first year of uni but I think it was just a way of going all right get this out of your system and sort some shit out in 2017 which which I did. I then went back to uni in 2017 and, and did journalism. Really? Yeah. Did you do any auditions when you did the screen acting? No. No, and I actually found it very difficult because I, th- I think in my head I had this vision of what acting was going to be and it's, you know, it's like Liza Minnelli and applause and you get there and it's all about being vulnerable and letting yourself go and I was not, I was like, no, no, I didn't sign up for this bit. I'm I Liza Minnelli. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's like, no, no, I'm Liza Minnelli. Liza Minnelli doesn't do this, you know. So you drop out of university. How does it come about that you start working for SBS? Is it true that you did an ABC cadetship exam and didn't know who Kerry O'Brien was? Or is that not a thing? <laughs> yeah, no, I confused Tony Jones with Kerry O'Brien. I don't even I look mean, alike. On the ABC. Well, you know, white men all do I look was going to say, ABC white men oh, talking about oh, politics. I mean, come on. <laughs> no, I did. I, I, I applied for the um, ABC cadetship and the SBS cadetship. And the ABC cadetship had an exam. And one of the questions was was I think who was the host of Late Line that's an interesting exam question like how well do you know us well that's right I think you know it's one of those things if you want to work for this organization you have to sort of prove that you at least watch the product that we put out (laughs) um, which proved wrong Um, (laughs) and yeah I I think I wrote Kerry O'Brien and it was it was Tony Jones I think Kerry O'Brien was the host of the 730 report as it was known at that time and then I remember I sort of um, had this moment where you're talking to the people who did the exam as well and they were like oh what about the late line question I was like oh no I put Kerry O'Brien and they're like it's Tony Jones I was like no (laughs) that moment when you walk out of an exam and you're so confident in your response and then you hear everyone else talking about it like fuck I got B everyone else got C (laughs) yeah it was sort of that moment that was the moment that I had but also I wasn't very confident coming out of that exam anyway because I didn't I did no I did very little prep I don't like prepping for exams because I find that I get in my head too much when I have too much prep but then also when you don't prep you just don't know shit. <laughs> so it really is a lose-lose situation and that's why I don't do exams. That's why I did two arts degrees that literally had no exams attached to them whatsoever. So, yes, I did confuse those two and I did not get the ABC cadetship. How did you start out at SBS then? 
I started because a friend of mine had a friend of hers who was working on Insight and they needed audience wranglers. So they needed someone to meet the audience and show them down to the green room before a recording of Insight. Mm-hmm. And that's how I kind of got into the building. And then what was going was a job in the news library, which was the kind of library where you log all of the footage that had gone to air that day. And it was from 10pm to 6am, so it was the overnight shift at the news library. Fun! Yeah, data (laughs) entry, basically. But I was so excited to get that job because it was like, okay, well, I'm in the network. I'm still at my last year at university. I'm in and around the news. I'm learning all this stuff about how news is put together. I'm meeting all of these journalists yeah I was I was really happy to get that job it sounds like you were quite scrappy in a really great way then and that you wanted to get in and then you'd figure your way out up after that is that accurate well I think that's just how you roll in general right like you can't you don't have everything figured out you don't know shit especially in the media where I think it's really hard to probably get that first job and once you've got it you're like great I'll do anything literally give me any order and I'll fill it yeah exactly it's like once you're in you're, you're generally in I mean it's not a surefire thing but generally what was it about journalism by that point that had brought you back to it so you'd done the acting thing and then you'd come back to journalism did you have that desire to tell stories like a lot of journalists say like what was it about the career path that you were attracted to I think it was just being able to make sense of the world. I was always very much interested in the news. I always watched the news voluntarily as a child, which I later found out that's not what <laughs> I was children do. I love how you said voluntarily as <laughs> yeah. a child because, no, it's true. So many children have kind of just like sat in front of it. Yeah, well, I remember being in, in class once and the teacher went around and said, okay, well, it was like a social media critique class or course. And the teacher said, oh, so let's go around the room and everyone can tell us what they watched last night and it got to me and I was like the news and I think the class was just like just went completely silent she's a nerd (laughs) and it was like even my friend who was sitting like right next to me she just turned around and just mouthed the news (laughs) you watched the news and I had this moment of like didn't everybody watch the news no not everybody watched the news as it turns out only I watched the news people were watching friends probably and like the Simpsons things that I watched yeah which I we weren't allowed to watch a lot of TV at growing up my parents hated it they hate it still sucked in I'm on it Um, but yeah so the news was we were allowed to watch the news that was no problem and I guess I watched like other things in the periphery as well can I get a quick sense of this timeline so when you started working at SBS what year was this? So there's a slightly muddled timeline in terms of like my career progression which involves quite a lot of travel overseas but the initial like first contact was in 2006. Wow. Yes so I was doing my second I was in my second last year of uni. I graduated in 2008 so in 2006. In 2007 I moved overseas to France and then in 2008 I came back as a casual and then in 2009 I got the cadetship. And in 2010, you travelled to Bangladesh, is that right? And then in 2010, I left again. (laughs) What was that experience like? Because you were a communications specialist, was it, with UNICEF? With UNICEF, yep. What was that like? That was pretty full on. That was a big year. Yeah. You know, Bangladesh is an amazing place, but if you're not used to living in places where there are so many people and there are quite a lot of issues, and if you're not used to working in that development space, you know, all of this becomes a very big eye-opener. 
but it was it, it was a great time and I, I met people there who I would call friends for life for sure mm. and really learnt quite a lot about I mean this sounds like the most cliche fuckwit thing to say but you do learn a lot about yourself when you go to these places and I had never intended to make it a journey about me and what I was going to self-discover it was never a journey of self-discovery at all it was actually it came about because I'm genuinely interested in development and wanted to see if I really wanted to work in that space or whether I, I wanted to continue in journalism and so when I saw that it was an opportunity I thought okay great let me kind of see what I can contribute here and what I can you know learn from being in that professional environment but it really did teach you a lot about you know resilience and how you approach the world and what your worldview is and how to kind of have have a sense of personal strength I guess. What is the day-to-day of that role like? Because to someone like me who's never done it, I look at that role and I'm like, that sounds amazing, but what is it day to day? So you're basically manning things like the websites. You're doing all of their kind of internal communications. They would have booklets about the projects that they run that you would be in charge of. And a lot of the role comprised of actually being out there in the field looking and observing some of the projects that UNICEF was involved in. So it was a lot of travel, which I'm like so thankful that I got a role that allowed me to travel to places that were extraordinary mm. and so a lot of it was basically just telling the world what UNICEF was up to you know it was yeah. a it was a comms PR role for UNICEF. Is it true you speak three languages? It is true yeah. What, what are they? English. But clearly. <laughs> oh, uh, wow. sure. Not very well. <laughs> Not very well. <laughs> Not quite fluent yet. Getting uh, <laughs> yeah it is. I, well, I speak English and I speak Arabic because I yeah. that, my background is Lebanese and I speak French because of that one year that I spent in France and I had to learn French for two years before I moved over there. What is it about you then because you said very early on that you're a very curious kid and clearly you can speak these languages and did a lot of traveling very young do you think that was kind of like nature or nurture this desire to see the world and get that perspective I feel like it was more nature than nurture my sisters aren't like that or not to that extent I think they love travel but I don't think any of them would have moved overseas at 21 or really wanted to do an international studies degree and you know go and do their last year on exchange so I think yeah there's there's a lot of nature there involved but my my dad is very similar you know he's sort of very curious about the world although hates planes so won't travel but reads a lot he can get on a boat boats are good also hates boats Uh, hates a lot of methods of transportation really (laughs) no really it's quite a problem he he only does cars which i got married in tasmania in 2016 and we said dad you can't drive Tasmania." (laughs) i mean you can try i mean you can try but you can't so pop a couple of valium not that i'm endorsing that but he's a very nervous flyer do something do meditation whatever it is that you need to do to get on the plane and get to Tasmania, which he did eventually. It was fine. You've cemented yourself as a very influential voice about what progressive young Australians care about. And you've travelled the world a lot covering stories that relate to young Australians. Is there one across the years where you've felt that it's really stuck with you and stayed with you? I'm never really sure when people kind of ask me those sorts of questions because I care about so many things. (laughs) Sometimes it's just like a surplus. There's too many things to care about. I have to like take a couple of things off my plate. Coming up after the break, why Jan considers comedy a prevailingly male-dominated space. But first, a word from our sponsor. Zara, you know how much I enjoy doing my makeup before a night out, but it is so demotivating when I open my makeup bag and see that it is messy and chaotic and a little bit gross. Oh, mine can be just as, if not more chaotic than yours, which is basically my entire life, as you are well aware. But Becca May has changed the makeup game, haven't they? They absolutely have. Becca May's makeup bags are both functional and versatile. They're designed for busy women and messy women like you and I, keeping our cosmetics and brushes in separate and secure compartments. It also doesn't look like any other 
makeup bag either. It is super stylish, especially compared to all the dorky old makeup bags I've had in the past. Mm. On the outside, the Becca May makeup bag looks like a timeless handbag, but once you open it up, you've got yourself a spacious makeup bag too. Becca May makeup bags were actually designed by a flight attendant, so it's no coincidence they're super convenient for travel too. When you and I go interstate for work, Zara, like Brisbane or Sydney, we only need to bring our Becca May bags now to keep our toiletries and our cosmetics because it just makes everything so much easier. I know, right? I actually used to have three separate bags for toiletries, makeup and brushes, but now it all actually fits in one and includes a clear removable insert as well, which is super, super handy. It's also just one less thing to think about or two if we're counting all the extra bags that was lying around. <laughs> Guys, if you'd like your own Becca May makeup bag, they are offering Shameless listeners a sweet, sweet discount. Go and use the code SHAMELESS at checkout to receive 10% off your Becca May order. That's the code SHAMELESS at checkout for 10% off. You can visit their website at beccamay.com to find out more or head to their Instagram at beccamayofficial. And that's Becca with two Ks. Thank you so much to Becca May for sponsoring this episode of Shameless. When you found yourself at the feed in that job, did you know what it was going to be and perhaps the impact it was going to have? No. Did nobody knew you? what the feed was going to be. No one knows what anything's going to be in a year's time. I mean, there's so much change in television and in the media and in that space that you start something and you kind of just progress with it year on year. And that was honestly the the mindset that we all had. We, we were all like, okay, well, we're starting on the show and it's going to go to the end of the year. And then at the end of the year, we'll make a decision or the, you know, the, the powers be we'll make a decision about whether it continues and that's kind of been the process and every year has been in my view it gets bigger it gets better it gets sharper it learns from things that didn't work in 2014 that might work in 2015 we used to have a thing on the show where someone would pitch a story and we'd go oh no that was feed 2015 it's 2016 now you know yeah or no no that was feed 2017 we're 2019 we don't do feed 2017 anymore you know so there was always this idea that we were trying to constantly be improving and constantly be attempting to better ourselves. What are the ingredients that make the feed so successful? Because it does have a really strong place in even pop culture as well as current affairs and politics. What was it that made it so great? I think it was everybody being allowed to do exactly what they wanted to do and what they were good at. I think a lot that well all of the presenters really were given that scope and that's been really huge and if you look like myself and Mark for now when I I don't work on the show anymore but when I did we were the dual hosts and I think one of the reasons why we worked so well is because we had very different things that we wanted to do he was very much interviews and celebrity I was analysis and opinion and we did I did not want to cross into that territory he certainly did not want to come over to mine (laughs) and it was great because we would bounce off each other but we'd have our own kind of patches that we'd really work towards bettering so I think that's been a really really important part of making a good show is bringing out the best in people and saying okay rather than having a prescriptive role what do you do best do that and do it as best as you can. Was there ever a concern within the team that perhaps you were speaking to the same audience of people who already agreed with you? Because that's such a conversation at the moment that branching outside of our own bubbles and reaching other people. Is that ever a concern with that channel? 
I mean, it's a concern with anybody trying to do anything anywhere at any time, you know, of like, uh, am I am I reaching the right audiences? Is my message the right message? How do I stay as impartial as possible? I think particularly online, that space is, it's become very blurred. I think even if you wanted to be as impartial as possible, you would be placed somewhere based on who listens and who watches and who you engage with and who your viewers and your followers are and um, what it is that you're talking about and the way in which you're talking about it. It's almost impossible to rid yourself of those connotations. And so, of course, that was a very big concern for us, both on television and and principally online. It's a huge concern for me. And I don't know what to do about it, which is actually the scarier thing because once you clock that something's a certain way, you go, okay, well, how do we try and remedy that? I don't know. Well, it's like you've got to crack an algorithm that nobody understands. Yeah, I, I can't do that. And you really feel like you are at the behest of the algorithm. I mean, the, the most powerful people in the world right now are the people who are programming those algorithms, who I just imagine sitting in a dingy room in a hoodie and some sneakers. I don't know. That's just... <laughs> maybe I'm Zuckerberg, I'm, if you're listening. It's well, probably true. Well, I mean, if you're talking about who has a phenomenal amount of power that I don't think people are recognising as much as what they should, it is the algorithm planners and creators mm. because they are literally shaping the conversation. They're shaping how we interact with people and, and social media. It's changed what it means to be human. And so that is an inordinate amount of power to have and we don't even clock it. We think, okay, well, the powerful are, you know, the, the folks in the White House or people who run Fortune 500 companies or whatever it is. And, of course, they are. But there's there's also these other elements that I think are probably worth paying more attention to than we are. If we're talking about cracking algorithms, though, there was certainly a time and a really long time where you guys were able to crack the algorithm and you in particular, Dan, with your videos, they were able to crack an algorithm and reach mainstream audiences in a way that I don't think many other videos or content could. Was that a, an aim for you, though, to make political content mainstream in a way that it hadn't been really made mainstream for young people before? Short answer, yes. The France, which is the series of videos that I make, yeah. was something that was a, it was a very sort of deliberate creation last year, whereby I've always been interested in, in analysis and opinion. I, I'm, I'm a journo, I do investigative journalism, and I also do this, which I see more as a column. And I'm very sort of clear about that. This is my analysis. It's my take on what has been happening in the news. Is that why the name is quite deliberate as well, like The Frant? The Frant, yeah. the Jan Fran rant. Yeah. It's very clever. It's very <laughs> um, clever. Inspired. It's really, it's really inspired. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. So yes, I did want to make something that would reach new audiences. And I'm so much more fascinated by the online space than I am by the television space. And that's where our audiences are. They're young, they're engaged. They're not watching television on the secondary network of Australia's second favourite public broadcaster. (laughs) Although it should be the nation's first favourite. But, you know, they're, they're just not. I mean, that's what the numbers tell us time and time again. But in terms of like, I crack the algorithm. I didn't crack nothing. I just did what I did and the algorithm applauded. Well, it applauded, but actually I started making these videos, very early iterations of it before it kind of became what it was, was in late 2017. And that year was a gangbuster year for us. We would make videos and they would get hundreds of thousands, if not millions of views. And by the end of 2017, the algorithm changed and they were going to prioritise individuals and personal Facebook accounts rather than pages, so rather than media pages. So my page, Jam Fran, is a page rather than a personal Facebook account. And 
so the priority went to personal Facebook accounts and suddenly pages were we were getting one fifth of the views in 2018 that we got in 2017 didn't change anything but the algorithm changed and you have no recourse I mean you can complain which we did a lot of people <laughs> did it killed a lot of news it outlets it killed a lot of smaller outlets for sure and businesses too I mean businesses are pages mm. and we really noticed that difference and we hadn't changed anything we were doing it was the algorithm that did and this is what is utterly terrifying about any of the platforms that we operate on unless I mean I hope that y'all own the platform because they might just change something tomorrow whereby if your numbers are determined by the platform by which you publish who knows another scary aspect of social media particularly for women is the feedback that you can get when you dare to speak your mind as your profile has grown how have you found that has that been a problem for you because many of the women we speak to with profiles have found that the I guess the nature of the discourse that they receive online is a little bit toxic sometimes uh, has it been a problem? No, it hasn't been a problem. Has it been intense and consistent? No, it hasn't. In terms of getting trolled, I don't really get trolled, knock on wood. I hope no trolls are listening to this now. Going, <laughs> oh, Ooh, we have very few like trolls. licking their lips, <laughs> okay. being like, I found one I to found target. a person who doesn't get trolled. <laughs> no more. I don't get trolled. I will get people who, and I talk a lot about women's issues. So, you know, I make videos on pay gaps and the myth of the meritocracy and all of this kind of stuff. And I will get people sliding into my DMs. A lot of men, a lot of men telling me, hey, have you read this report or have you have you considered it from this perspective? That's not trolling. Do you me. know who Jordan Peterson is? Do you know who Jordan, <laughs> or they will quote Jordan Peterson. They will, they will say, and this is how you know that, okay, something's up because they'll say things like, it's not about equality of outcome, it's about equality of opportunity. And I think to myself, honey, I've watched the same Jordan Peterson video. Like, girl, what are you trying to do? Like, how many YouTube clips did it take for you to get there? Because I got it in two. You know, or they'll say something like, socialists don't like the poor, they hate the rich. Where you're like, again, I know where you got that from because I watched the same video. I've done very, I was very deep in my rudimentary research. Yeah, well, exactly. You know, yes, I don't, I don't really get trolled. And I accept anyone who I think is acting in good faith towards me. You don't have to agree with me. You really don't have to agree with me, but you have to act in good faith. You know, you have to be driven by, and some people are driven by a desire to shame other people and they're driven by a desire to virtue signal to their own tribe. I'm not driven by those desires. I, I don't I don't care to shame you and I don't care to signal to anyone about anything. And, I, and if I feel that you're on the same page as I am, then, you know, feel free to say anything. What's interesting about our chats around algorithms and the fact that so many young people are getting their news off social media is the fact that it's felt personally to me like a lot of news has had to have been dumbed down in the process in order to reach people. How do you feel about the state of journalism now? Do you feel like that's a correct assessment or do you not feel like it's being dumbed down? It's just harder to reach people. I don't think it's being dumbed down. I think what we're seeing is just more of everything. So we're seeing the idea that journalism's dead or that good journalism is dead. That's not true. There's more good journalism now than there was. There's also quite a lot more shit journalism, (laughs) right? So there's just a lot more of everything. And the ratio might be skewed. So you might have a two to one, 10 to one shit to good journalism ratio, but that primary source of good journalism has grown since the advent of the internet. The advent of the internet. What I mean, an sure. old person phrase to say. <laughs> Don't, Zara's the queen of uh, old oh person But I, ma- I like butcher them. So I would have said something stupid like, I don't even know. The cream <laughs> like rises to the top is Zara's favourite. the worldwide web. Yeah. <laughs> mm. The interwebs. Yeah. Jan, what was behind your decision to leave the feed? 
Oh, it was just time. Yeah, it was really just time. And I'd been there for six years and I felt like I had really gotten as much as what I could get out of me. Like I was saying to you guys, the show really changed and in my view got kind of bigger and better and presented more opportunities as the years wore on. And I think by year six, you think to yourself, all right, well, I've done... I've done a lot of stuff, you know. I've done lives, I've done half hours, I've done sketches, I've made my own videos, I have done, you know, we did an election road trip around the country, five electorates in five days, went overseas and and shot heaps of documentaries. So there's been a really big scope of stuff that I've done. It's just got to a point where it's like, all right, well, time for something new and different. What is coming next for you? Is it more commercial television as well? Because you do a bit of the project, is that right? Yeah, I do a bit bit of of the project, yeah. um, Panel stuff on other shows, even like ABC Drum, which isn't commercial, but there's lots of others. Yeah, I am a media hoe. I once was on like... (laughs) Is that what you're trying to say, Michelle? No, that's what I am saying. (laughs) Yeah, there was at one point I was on like the four ABC 7, 9 and 10 all in the space of a week. Amazing. So (laughs) I'm like, all right, okay, girl. Sometimes I'm like, I wonder if 9 knows I'm on 7. I'm not going to tell them and I hope no one's listening to this podcast <laughs> as, as, as I say it. But, um, yeah, I do a lot of um, panel shows um, and I do I do the project and, um, there's look, there's a bunch of things in the works at the moment mm. but my name is not on any kind of dotted line and therefore I'm <laughs> reticent and I, this is the one piece of advice that I will give to people. The dreaded dotted line. Shut the front door unless your name is on that dotted line. Because things keel and people change their minds. (laughs) Things fall apart. Things fall apart. And, you know, it ain't happening till it's happening. I'm a a very big believer in that. So, yeah, there's there's a couple of things that I've been approached about that I'm quite excited about. Um, But I honestly don't think that I'll be working full-time, well, hopefully for the next year hopefully I want to do yeah I just want to be worked full time for a while I think I just want to be able to um, dabble in different projects for the next year you touched on before how you are more than willing to have a conversation with someone who disagrees with you and I imagine that would happen a lot with some of the mainstream television shows that you come on is that um, tricky to do in a mainstream context to have these disagreements with people who might have quite archaic views in some instances um, it depends on the outlet. It depends on the medium and it depends on, you know, where you are and who you're who you're sparring with. Mm. I don't like sparring. I'm not I think sometimes people, you know, might have this idea of like, oh, you know, Jan is like a vocal lefty person. We'll get her on with a vocal righty person. It's like, no, no, I don't want <laughs> Here's Pauline Hansen. Yeah, <laughs> no, no, I'm I'm not the left equivalent of Pauline Hansen. No, <laughs> that's not what I am. I don't want to do that. I don't really want to spar. I want to have a very reasonable conversation. And that does not good television make. No. Um, no, it doesn't. And that's fine. And, and I think people know what they're getting when, when they're getting me. I'm not, I'm not here to yell at people and I'm not here to, you know, show people up or prove a point or be combative. I don't want to do that. I don't like to do that. Um, but then again, having said that, if I do disagree with someone and we're all out here acting in good faith, that's fine. That's mm. no problem. Mm. I, I feel very comfortable in those spaces in, in being able to do that. But I'm not here to make you look like a fool. That's not I'm not I don't, that doesn't I'm not driven by that desire. In May this year, you did an interview with Stella magazine and the pullout quote that they used for that magazine was I've been having this diversity conversation for twenty years, people just haven't been listening. Can you speak to that for a little bit and explore what you actually meant in that quote? Yes, I can. Um, it, I basically meant that, that I have been very cognizant of the fact that um, newsrooms have been predominantly white, media has been white, faces on television have been white, and I've been very cognizant of that for decades. Um, when I was 
uh, had just graduated from university, I didn't apply for any of the commercial networks because I had this belief that they didn't want somebody who looked like me. You know, I have olive skin, I have curly hair, um, I'm five foot two, you know, I'm not a tall, thin, blonde woman. Um, and so I, 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 I believe that and I internalise that and I acted according, accordingly. And to act accordingly meant to go, okay, well, there are certain things in this world that are not mine because of the way that I look. And I really believe that. Um, and I think that's bullshit. I look back at that and I think that's absolute bullshit. Um, I mean, just the other day I was listening to a, a, an interview, a hard chat interview between Tom Gleeson and Ange Bishop. And Ange Bishop and Tom Gleeson said, oh, your hair's naturally curly. And Ange Bishop said, yeah, but the commercial networks don't like curly hair. And it was all a joke. It was in jest and, you know, she, it was, she was joking about her own personal situation of having curly hair and having to straighten it. And I thought for a minute, I thought, there are people who can't straighten their hair, who have curly hair. Like, if you put me in the humidity in Queensland, ain't nothing going straight, you know? So there was this idea that, well, there are certain features that are just not really welcome or sought after on commercial television networks. And this is today. This isn't, like, I mean, this interview was, like, what, a couple of months ago, you know? This isn't 1992. It's today. So today we still have these kind of idealised um, versions of what we want Australians to look like and Australian television presenters to look like. And that, that conversation that I have had for decades with my friends growing up going, why is everyone so fucking warm? <laughs> Um, that conversation is now being had in the mainstream because you have things like Twitter and Facebook and you have platforms um, by which to actually voice these things. Because when you didn't have a platform, you were just voicing them, you know, at two-for-one cocktail hour at the Beresford with your best girlfriends or whatever. You know, that's the conversation that you'd have. And now that conversation has gone a little bit more mainstream because there are other people as well who are like, hang on, I'm Asian or I'm South Asian descent or I'm North Asian descent or I'm African descent or I wear a hijab how come I don't see myself reflected on the screen? And it goes beyond a visibility thing as well. I think even in the, the stories that are picked that are deemed newsworthy, if they all have a white lens, no wonder why we're constantly hearing about what happens to white people as opposed to all diversity like across Australia. Do you think that's accurate? That story selection would also be impacted by diversity in newsrooms. Sure. I mean, of course, you you, you talk about what you know. You're never going to get a new idea if there's not a, a, a new person in there. You're never going to get a new perspective if you don't go out and seek people that uh, don't have the same perspectives as you. And that's not to say that all white people have the same perspectives. That would be a folly thing to suggest and I wouldn't do that. Um, but there's something that comes with having the lived experience of being a minority in this country that you can't have if you're white or you can't have in the same way if you're white. Um, uh, and so kind of encouraging those different perspectives at all levels of decision-making I think is really important because I think what's happening now, there's like a tiny cynical garden gnome that lives deep inside <laughs> me and comes out uh, all the time. But I think what's happening now is you still have um, decision-makers that are very much predominantly white who go, okay, diversity, sweet, let's just put like a brown person on TV and we're cool. And it's like, well... That's not how it works. You know, that to me is tokenism. And there's a big conversation, I think, to be had around tokenism and, and diversity. Well, that's what I was just going to ask you. You've said you've been having this conversation for 20 years and maybe suddenly we're starting to have it on a more public level. Has anything actually changed in that 20 years for you that's, that's meaningful? Yes. 
Yeah? Yeah, I think it has changed. I was having um, a coffee with a friend of mine who had just recently graduated from university who's also of Lebanese background and had sought me out um, to, to you know, have, have a talk about what it was like to enter the, the industry. One, I never had a me 10 years ago. She does now. Uh, and, and two, she was saying, you know, I feel like it's a good time because I feel like people want um, people that look like me. And I had this moment of like, yes, girl, okay. Because 10 years ago, that was a very different story. And we actually have gotten somewhere in that last 10 years. I think that interaction was a perfect example of it. What is your end game? What do you enjoy about what you do? And what do you want to look back on at the end of your career and think, I'm happy I did that? What is my end game? I don't know if I, if I really have an end game. I think I just have a very um, heightened bullshit detector and I would just like to keep just telling people when I think things are bullshit. And that, look, that might be the coward's way out because I'm not really doing anything about them. I'm just saying, <laughs> hey, this is, a, this is a problem, then I'm going home and eating a sandwich <laughs> in front of the TV. That's, that's what's happening. But I, I sort of see my role as, um, as, a, as, a, as a way of just kind of drawing attention to things that I think need some attention drawn to them. You said before we jumped on mic that you want to push away a little bit from television next. Mm. Is that right? I know you can't say specifically because there's no dotted lines yet. What is next? But what are the kinds of things that you enjoy doing? Is it podcasting? Is it being online? Is it... We it's did... all of those things. It's, you know, um, it's it's podcasts, it's books, it's um, trying to uh, forge a slightly more, um, I guess, solidified path via the internet. So it's about kind of, you know, new and improved ways of making video speaking I really like I do quite a lot of speaking um, certainly more so now than I ever have done and that's something that I want to continue particularly around issues that I you know well only around issues that I care about really like I'm not going to go out and speak on you know um, what it's like to work in construction I don't know what it's like to work in construction but Go know. where the money is, Jen. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I am doing some. I, I am doing a conference of, um, with with um, women in construction, um, but that's more the women. I'm there for more the women of element. Of it. <laughs> Let me tell no you about gonna, building things. Yeah, no one's going to ask me about how to, you know, pour a slab on it. Some scaffolding. Yeah, that's facts. right. Well, I hope no one asks me because they're not going to get a very good answer. Um, so, yeah, I, they're the sort of things that I'd really like to continue. And also the big thing for me this year and last year has been people and really connecting with people who are doing some really interesting shit and have the right intention. Intention is very big for me. Mm. And I just I want to connect with like-minded people um, uh, and, and kind of grow those networks. We read in another interview that you see in your future or it is an aspiration that you would like to one day work on a late-night female-driven comedy show. Yeah. Do you think that's something that television executives <laughs> will actually look at and see the value in that and how much commercial pull and audience pull that would have soon? I hope so. I mean, we're sort of starting to see that happen, um, you know, very slowly in the States. There's been a number of shows that have been commissioned via streaming services as well in the last few years. And Sam B has really, I think, made quite solid inroads in within that late night kind of comedy space. I don't I don't know if how it will work here. Australia's a much smaller market. Mm. And I don't I'm 
I'm not sure what medium would be best. Would it be, you know, an online thing? Would would it be via the ABC? Would you go commercial? And how would you do it if you would go commercial? Would you go on? Would you tag one of the streaming services, for example? And what would that look like? And how would that kind of change the format? But I think now is the time because we're talking about issues that affect women more and more. Certainly more now than we have in the last, you know three, four, five years, there was this one, um, I think it was, was it the cover of Time? It was one magazine cover that I saw where they did a spread on late night comedians and it was like a cock forest, a dense... <laughs> cock forest. <laughs> it was a cock forest. It was just, I think there were maybe about 10 men in black suits all sort of like posing together. You were like, where are the women? Mm. Like just one mm. I'm not even asking for equality. I'm asking for someone to like... <laughs> just a peppering of women. Just to like <laughs> toss us a bone, would you, you know? Um, Haven't you heard women aren't funny? Women are just not funny. Mm. That's And that's really good, isn't it? Too women. emotional <laughs> and women, not funny enough. No, not funny. Mm. But that's why like Hannah Gadsby was so revolutionary. And it's crazy to think that even... that What was that, 2017, 2018, when Hannah Gadsby's Netflix special mm. went wild? And it was almost like for so many men I know some of my own friends are like this is the first comedy special I've watched from a woman oh what it's like how crazy is that that this is where we are comedy is very male dominated yeah it's like it's one of the you know it's I'm constantly unpleasantly surprised by how male dominated it is and if you think about it men are given more leeway for humor you know I went to an all-girls high school and I was um I was talking to a friend of mine and and we were talking about the class clowns, our class clowns. And I said, my class clown was a, a girl called Sarah. And the first thing my friend said to me was, you went to an all-girls high school, didn't you? And I said, yeah, I did. She's like, yeah, if you'd gone to a co-ed high school, there's no way your class clown would have been a girl. It would have been a boy because boys are given the scope to be loud and to be obnoxious and to use their body for comedy, you know, to moon the bus. And that's hilarious. But if you're a girl and you moon the bus, then that becomes... Fucking weird. Well, it becomes sexual is what it becomes. Totally. You've shown a part of your body that is associated with shame Mm, um, that boys don't have. And so that's just one aspect whereby they're slightly more freer to explore that, you know, silly, playful, comedic space. Um, And to be, you know, loud and in your face and rude to teachers. And I'm so grateful... And some people will disagree with me on this, and that's cool. I'm so grateful that I went to an all-girls high school. I am so grateful because I think to myself, if boys would have cramped the fuck out of my style, they really would have, especially in those formative years where you start to tailor the way you behave to, you know, to the boys and you, you want to be attractive and you want to be kind of demure and you want them to like you. And all. We didn't have any of that stuff because we had no boys, you know, so you could just do what you do. If you want to be smart, you'd be smart. If you want to be loud, you could be loud. It was We were not acting in, you know, a kind of an opposition to them or relational to them. We just were as we were. And I do wonder how that would have changed if, if boys had, you know, been introduced into our school or had gone to a co-ed school. We finish every episode with the same question, and that is, what does success look like to you? How do you define success? How do you measure it in your own life? That's a good question. How do I define success? Um... I think I would define it as as the the manifestation of belief for me. Um, 
sometimes I think to myself, the, the, the most successful stories that I think I've had are the stories or the documentaries or, um, you know, the, the bits of content where I've had an image in my head and that has played out exactly how I wanted it to play out in my head in real life, where I've been able to kind of execute this particular vision that I had in my head and I thought, okay, that has been a successful thing for me. Um, I guess it's it's about it's about being able to bring to to manifest your own reality mm. in and a visualize sense. what you want and enact that I guess and visualize what you want and and yeah and and enact that kind of bring bring that about. Jan, yeah. you've been such a delight. Thank you so much for joining Thank you. us. We no, are you're welcome. So so grateful that you made the time, and yeah, I think everyone will really love this episode. The thing, and we're so excited to hear what's coming next, whatever <laughs> it might be. Started live. <laughs> I will be joining the doll queue and getting new stuff. Probably. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? I'm sure it's all coming. It, 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 it's all coming. Oh, well, we can't wait. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening to this In Conversation episode of Shameless with Jan Fran. If you loved listening to Jan as much as we love chatting to her, you can find more from her on Instagram at Jan underscore Fran. And as for us, well, as always, we're at Shameless Podcast. If you loved this chat, may we also suggest checking out similar chats we did with Georgie Dent, Carly Finlay, or even Jamila Rizvi. The links for those ones are in our show notes right now. We will see you guys on Monday.